Steve Jobs was the computer whiz who founded Apple Computers. In the early day of, days of the exploding PC industry, Jobs was stunned by the tremendous growth his startup company had experienced and realized that he needed help. Jobs could handle the technological and the developmental side of the business, but he needed some expertise on the managerial side. Well, Steve Jobs decided to hire an experienced executive who could provide his budding company with some good business savvy and some overall leadership. He scheduled a trip to New York City to recruit John Scully, who at the time was a top executive at Pepsi-Cola. Well, Jobs spent several days trying to persuade Scully. He extolled the potentials of Apple computers and the computer industry in general. And yet he sensed that his conversations were going nowhere. He had this sinking feeling that John Scully wasn't interested in his offer. And so he made a last-ditch pitch to try to sell the executive on his company. In desperation, Steve Jobs, he looked Scully in the eye and he challenged him. Mr. Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? Later in his autobiography, John Scully says that was the question that jarred him, that forced him to examine the direction of his life. Shortly thereafter, John Scully left PepsiCo and joined Apple Computers. This morning, I want to challenge you with the same question that Jobs asked John Scully. Do you want to spend the rest of your life doing superficial stuff, stuff like selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Since becoming a Christian, I've discovered the most immense thrill on the planet is to be used by God to lead another person to Jesus. Base jumping, skydiving, Bungee cords and hang gliders are tame in comparison. When we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in someone else's salvation, we are not only changing the world, we're populating heaven. In comparison, making money or hobbies or sports or business tastes like bottled boredom. Do you want to invest the one and only life you have, your time, your energy, your resources in sugared water? Are you interested in changing your world? If you're a thrill seeker, if you're living, if you like living on the edge, if you enjoy high stakes, spine tingling, risk taking, adrenaline pumping, incredibly significant activity, seek no further. Join the grand adventure. Be a witness for Jesus. Never forget, it is the souls of people that lasts forever. Here in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes up the challenge to change his world. His story teaches us three important truths. First, lost people matter to God. Second, God maneuvers his people to reach lost people. And then third, Philip maximizes the opportunity that God gives him. Here's our outline this morning. What matters how we are maneuvered, and how we can maximize the opportunity God gives us. First, we need to be reminded that lost people matter to God. In the chapter prior, the church had experienced explosive growth. 
In Acts 6, the Jerusalem church no longer grows by addition, but by multiplication. Now in Acts chapter 8, the same phenomenal growth is occurring in Samaria. There are tens of thousands of new believers in Jerusalem and thousands more now in Samaria. You'd think God would have enough to worry about. Yet despite the colossal crowds in these two strategic centers, the Lord sees an African diplomat from Ethiopia. No doubt, along with his entourage, he's on a deserted road headed in the opposite direction, and he's seeking salvation. It prompts God to dispatch a disciple named Philip to share the gospel with this Ethiopian. Hey, that God would send Philip is amazing. If you read the first half of chapter 8, you discover that Philip was the man spearheading this revival in Samaria. He was God's point person. God was using Philip to initiate the work. Wouldn't it be a better utilization of personnel to keep the general in Samaria and send a private to this lone traveler? Well, apparently not. God had such love for the Ethiopian that he removed Philip from the action in Samaria and sent him to reach this one solitary seeker on a deserted country road. It proves just how much God loves the individual. Hey, you might be a number to your bank. You might be an ID code at the school. But when God looks into the crowd, he recognizes each one of us individually. People matter to God. As Augustine once put it, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. You remember in Luke chapter 15, Jesus reminds us that God is like a shepherd with a hundred sheep, yet if just one single sheep strays, he leaves the 99 to search for that one. Obviously, God cares about each of us specifically. Realize, Jesus never met a person He didn't love. He never saw a person he did not value. When he visited Matthew's party, he even rubbed shoulders with the seedy people, folks like tax collectors and prostitutes. These were the kind of people you and I might be nervous around. People who would keep the tattoo parlor in business. They had the funny hair color and the body piercings all over. These were the disenfranchised folks, the down and out. We're talking the seriously strayed sheep. Yet every single one of them mattered to Jesus. When the religious crowd criticized Jesus for being interested in the underbelly of society, he answered their objections. Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hey, Jesus cares for the person who makes you and I uncomfortable. The guy who drinks and smokes and goes to wild parties. The girl who cusses like a sailor and only speaks the name of Jesus when she's swearing. The person who's all sugar and spice when you're around, then stabs you in the back when you're gone. Jesus died for the neighbor with the barking dog. Can you believe it? The driver in the car that's slowing you down. Your rival on the team who's out for your position. The clerk at the checkout who charges you too much. The co-worker or classmate who's a nuisance. Jesus cares for the people that are inside and even outside your circle. Even those who don't look and act and talk and think like you. One author writes, 
You have never locked eyes with another human being who isn't valuable to God. Jesus died for everyone you have ever met. People matter to God, and they need to matter to us. Hey, I don't want to reach heaven and hold the nail-scarred hand without caring about the folks that hand died to save. Well, first, lost people matter to God. But second, God maneuvers His people to reach lost people. You know, it's interesting that God uses people to reach people. And we might take that fact for granted. But when you step back from the situation, you realize it's quite amazing that he would rely on such insufficient means. I mean, he could have assigned this task to angels. They would have been more efficient. I'm sure angelic messengers would be more consistent and clear and confident witnesses than you and I. I can't really picture an angel having to muster up his courage or having to grope for the right words. Angels never get sweaty palms or a lump in their throat. That's us. Yet God intends to use us. He uses the useless. He has planned it so that He won't do it without us, and we can't do it without Him. We are His messengers, and God has no alternates. The world's destiny is in our hands. You see, it's when you realize how much people matter to God that people will begin to matter to you. There'll be an ache in your heart when you meet a person that Jesus died to heal who's confused and in pain. And when people begin to matter to you like they matter to God, God's Spirit will begin to maneuver you into positions where you can be a strategic witness. Notice Philip had his ear to the heavens. Yes, God was doing a wonderful work in Samaria, but Philip was open to whatever and wherever God might send him. If I'd been in the midst of this glorious revival, and God had asked me to journey to a lonely highway to be a witness to a lonely man, I might object. God, this is my one chance to be famous. If I stay here in Samaria, I can pastor a megachurch. But when God whispered in Philip's ear, he was quick to obey. Philip was flexible and open and compliant. Philip was easily moldable to the will of God. All that mattered to Phil was what mattered to God, and that was the people or person that God wanted him to reach. Perhaps you remember the Mercedes-Benz commercial that showed one of their cars colliding into a concrete wall during a safety test. There was minimal damage to the crash dummy. The announcer, he asked an engineer, why the company never enforced the patent on their shock-absorbing car body. The design has been emulated by car companies all over the world. The engineer, he looks the camera straight in the eye and he replies, because in life, some things are just too important not to share. This is how you and I need to feel about the gospel. Nothing should get in our way of our mission. Our whole goal our mission, our schedules, our plans, our activities, our plans for the weekend, our academic ambitions, everything in our lives should revolve around the wonderful task of getting the good news to the people around us. When God knows that my central aim is to reach the people He loves, 
then he'll begin to maneuver my life to reach those people who are ready to receive his love. It's been said, when men have the will to speak for their Lord, they will find no shortage of opportunities to do so. Notice God speaks to Philip in verse 26 to go to Gaza. Then he speaks to him again in verse 29 to go near and overtake the chariot. You see, like a director on the set, God is speaking to the actor. He's nudging him and whispering to him and pointing to him and moving Philip into place. He can do the same with us. I think we turn a real corner in our Christian lives when we realize that the Holy Spirit oversees our thinking. The Holy Spirit can and does implant thoughts into our head. On occasion, He'll give you a specific, spontaneous, supernatural direction. At other times, He guides our thoughts far more naturally. Later, we find out that the thought that we had was not just a good idea, but it was actually a God thing. He was responsible for that input. Author Lloyd Ogilvie, he writes this, The adventure begins when we love the Lord with our minds and dare to believe that He can invade the tissues of our forebrain to guide our thinking, imagination, and will. He becomes the Lord of our intelligence, the generator of possibilities we never dreamed could be. Couple that with the will to act on what He guides, and you have the secret of exciting living. Well, Philip was always open to a divine appointment. That's how you and I need to live. I'll never forget an adventure that God took us on many years ago. Kathy and I had set out that night to see a movie. By the time the story was over, we had been to the threshold of hell and to the vestibule of heaven. It was a grand adventure. Next to the movie theater that we had visited was Skip's Roadhouse Bar and Grill. Trust me, Skip's was a lot more bar than it was grill. Well, as I was getting into my car after seeing the movie, I noticed that there was a guy sitting outside the door collecting cover charges. He was obviously the bouncer. The Lord nudged me to witness to this man. And being the obedient guy that I am, I ignored the nudge and I got into my car. But I'm telling you, the impression was so strong that I couldn't drive off. I froze. I couldn't drive. I took a deep breath. I got out of my car, and I went to talk to this man. Well, just as I approached the guy, he ducked back into Skip's bar. I thought, surely the Lord doesn't want me to go into that bar. What if one of our church members sees me going into Skip's Roadhouse Bar and Grill? What if one of our church members is in Skip's Roadhouse Bar and Grill? I turned, I got back in my car, and for the next six weeks, the next month and a half, I tried to forget the whole thing. The problem was that every time I drove past Skip's, I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart, gently nudging me, gently asking me, when, Sandy, are you going to be obedient? Well, one day, it was a Saturday night, I was working on my sermon, I, Lord, I can't do this, I got to go to Skip's Roadhouse Bar and Grill. And so I got in my car, I drove up to Skip's, I walked in, and sure enough, the same burly bouncer was now tending bar. I walked up to the bar and I asked him if I could speak to him. He walks around the bar and I proceeded to tell this man that Jesus loved him and cared for him. I didn't know if the guy was going to shake my hand or wring my neck. 
I'll never forget, though, the tears that started beating up in his eyes as he told me how he'd been raised in a Christian home. And for the last month and a half, he had forgotten all about the Lord. It was perfect time. It was divinely planned. I'll never forget saying, buddy, you may have forgotten about the Lord for the last six weeks, but he hasn't forgotten about you. He's been on my case every day to get me to come up here and talk to you. We had an incredible conversation that I'll never forget. The seed of the gospel was so deep into this man's heart. See, all too often what kills our motivation to be a witness is that we assume that we're going to be rejected before we ever open our mouths. How did we get that? What a tragic miscalculation. Yes, there have been times when I've shared about Jesus and gotten a harsh reaction, but far more times my efforts have been respected. I've spoken to folks that I thought would be hostile to the gospel, but instead they thank me for caring enough to speak up. I believe people are more open to the gospel today than at any other time in history. Oh, people don't want to be beat over the head with a Bible, but if you love them, and if you lead them gently to Christ, they'll be receptive. People today are hungry for truth. I'll never forget a young man I picked up hitchhiking one day, back when you could do that. He needed to go to the intersection of Rock Bridge Road and Memorial Drive. It was about five minutes away. Along the way, I shared the Lord with him. And as he was opening the door to get out of my car, I asked him if he'd like to pray and commit his life to Jesus Christ. He turns to me with a rather matter-of-fact look on his face, and he says, sure. I'm thinking... It's not supposed to be that easy. Lord, did I leave something out? I need to make sure he's serious. And so I asked him to sit back down and I started into it again. You know, I just wanted to make sure he understood that he was making a commitment of his life to Jesus. He started to get agitated about my hesitance to pray with him. Finally, I asked him, I said, now, are you really sincere do you really believe in Jesus with all your heart? I'll never forget his answer. He looks at me and he says sternly, Well, hell yeah! <laughs> he made his point. I stopped grilling him and we prayed right then and there. I'm just saying, people are a lot more receptive to the gospel than you might assume. Understand, when the Lord nudges you in a direction, it's because He's at work on the other end of that connection. He's planning a holy hookup with you and that other person, that person in need. You don't realize it, but he's, while He's been maneuvering you, He's been working in that person. He's been softening their heart. He's been pre preparing them for the rendezvous. Look at this Ethiopian here. When Philip boards the chariot, this man is reading the Bible, no less. He's gone to Jerusalem in search of God. He's left with more questions than answers. I mean, the only thing he's gotten of any real value was the Gideon Bible he's taken out of his room. And now he's got it open. And he's reading Isaiah 53, believe it or not. An incredible prophecy of the saving work of Jesus Christ. See, God is at work on his end just as he was at work in Philip. 
This is what makes being a witness for Jesus so exhilarating. Yes, at times it's scary. Oh, it can be a little risky. You get the butterflies in your stomach. But when you obey the Lord and reach out to the person God has put in your path, you are participating in a truly supernatural, spiritual, heavenly event. Be a witness for Jesus and you get to live a miracle. And that's more living than most people do in their lifetime. Don't you want to get in the game? Why are you still sitting on the sidelines, man? Why are you letting your fears rob you of the enjoyment of being used by God? Take a venture in faith and see what God might do. As the famous missionary William Carey once said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Listen to these words by Sam Shoemaker. I stay near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And so many people only find a wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind people with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and to put it on the latch the latch that only clicks and opens to the person's own touch. People die outside that door. As starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. Those on the inside of the door live, live because they have found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping those outside find it and open it and walk in and find Him. So I stay near the door. Do you stay near the door? We need to understand that lost people matter to God. That God maneuvers us into position to reach these people. And finally, that we need to maximize the opportunities that God gives us. And notice the three ways that Philip takes advantage and makes the most of this supernatural encounter. First, in verse 29, he overtakes the chariot. What I picture here is Philip having to run alongside the chariot for a few hundred feet. I mean, this is an important dignitary. This is an official ambassador of the Ethiopian government, a representative of Candace, the queen, the treasurer of her empire. He's not about to just speak to any old passerby. I mean, Philip had to prove his sincerity and work to earn a hearing. He had to be persistent. A friend once told me about a salesman in his company who constantly earned the top awards. This fellow was a soft-spoken, a mild-mannered man, and the other salesman always wondered how he did it. Well, one month the sales me at the sales meeting, this particular fellow was asked the secret of his success. The super salesman, he gets up and he says simply, make the calls Make the calls, make the calls. And then he sat back down. 
You see, his secret was his persistence. And the same is true in reaching our friends with the gospel. You don't just try once and give up. God may bring you in contact with the right person, but when we first meet them, it might not be the right time. We've got to be patient and persistent and work to stay involved in that person's life. Look what happens next. In verse 31, after some brief dialogue, the Ethiopian invites Philip into his chariot. Philip's persistence pays off. He's now on board in this man's life. You see, the second way to maximize an opportunity is to witness on board a person's life. It's true, folks are open to the gospel, but they're more receptive to it when it's presented by people that they know and that they trust. People today can be skeptical. They can be cynical. That's why they'll be more receptive to the message if they know the messenger. This is why, in my opinion... Door-to-door evangelism is no longer the best approach to personal evangelism. I read of a woman in Long Island, New York, who snapped when another Jehovah's Witness came to her door. When she opened the door that day, she stuck the nose of a shotgun in the guy's face and started screaming, I'm sick of you people coming here. Door-to-door witnessing may work on some people, but not everyone really loves an uninvited visitor and and opens up their arms and invites them into their home. You see, we use all kinds of gimmicks to share the good news of Jesus. We think that's the answer. From t-shirts to bumper stickers to John 3.16 signs at football games. Yet listen, statistics over and over and over prove that 85% of committed Christians came to Christ through the witness of a friend. It was someone they knew who led them to Christ. Well, Philip, he overtakes this chariot. Then he undertakes a relationship. You see, if you can prove to a person you really love them, if you can cultivate a friendship with them, that they're not just another potential notch on your Bible cover, then when the time is right, they'll be much more open to the message you present. It's been said, before folks will care about what you know, they need to know that you care. When you take the time and make the effort to build a genuine friendship, then by your acts, you're proving you live what you believe. When a lost person sees firsthand how Christ has made a difference in a believer's life, they're quicker to desire that same difference for their own lives. Joe Aldrich said it best, Christians are to be the good news before they share the good news. Reminds me of a former alcoholic named Joe. Before his conversion, he was a derelict. He was someone you might call a wino. But when Jesus came into his life, he was made brand new. I mean, the love of Christ just oozed from Joe. He started working at the downtown mission, and he did whatever he was asked. No task was too low for Joe. He would wipe up the vomit and clean the toilets. He loved the street people, and he tried to meet their needs the best he could. Well, One night, the chaplain, he finished his usual salvation message, and he opened up the altar for an invitation. When all of a sudden, a repentant drunk man, he ran to the altar crying, Oh God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. Well, the chaplain thought the fellow should be corrected. He said, Sir, it would be better if you prayed, make me like Jesus. 
The man looked up with a puzzled expression on his face and asked, he says, is Jesus anything like Joe? (laughs) It's a truth. When your life is like Jesus, then the people around you will want Jesus in your life. Well, finally, notice that Philip not only overtakes the Ethiopian and boards his chariot, but there comes a point when Philip opens his mouth and speaks. He cultivates a friendship in order to articulate the truth. Read verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Hey, building a relationship Living out your witness, these are both important, but there comes a point when you need to present a verbal witness. You need to study and prepare now so that at just the right time, you'll be able, as Philip did, to preach Jesus to an inquisitive soul. Overtake the chariot, be persistent, cultivate the relationship, get personal, but then there comes a point when you need to articulate the truth and be vocal. There's really no point to building relationships and reaching out in love if we don't love that person enough to tell them the truth. It's sad but accurate. Many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. We need to thaw out our frozen tongues and be ready to give reason for the hope that's within us. You see, it's when you open your mouth, that's when the excitement builds. I mean, you can run alongside the chariot. You can even climb on board, and your pulse never rises. But the rush comes. The buzz begins when you open your mouth and you start telling them about Jesus. Read this conversation and put yourself in Philip's sandals. The back and forth, the give and take, the questions and the answers. Together, these two men, they dive into the Scripture, and each time they come up for air, Philip leads him back to Jesus. He's never pushy. He just preaches Jesus and lets the Ethiopian draw his own conclusions. As the conversation winds down, what a thrill it must have been when the Ethiopian looks Philip in the eye and asks, what hinders me from being baptized? I imagine Philip had to hold back his joy just so he could answer. He told him in verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the guy replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What a thrill. Verse 39 tells us that after the baptism of Philip, after the baptism, Philip was caught away by the Holy Spirit to the town of Azotus. He was miraculously transported about 35 miles. Apparently, God used Philip for some rapture practice. But maybe there's some symbolism in this picture. For i got to tell you, Whenever I've led, I've had the privilege of leading a person to Christ, I've always walked away on cloud nine. It is definitely an enrapturing experience. It's utter jubilation. Impacting a life for eternity is the most enrapturing experience I know. It's been said, the only thing better in going to heaven is taking somebody with you. It's no surprise to me that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says that the person who leads others to Christ will one day receive a crown of rejoicing. How fitting is that? Today, if you want to recapture the joy in your Christian life, then get off the sidelines, man. Be a player in the game. 
It's been said, if a man has a soul, and he has, and if that soul can be won or lost for eternity, and it can, then the most important thing in the world is to bring that man to Jesus Christ. There is a Palestinian Christian who owns a gift shop on the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem. Over the years, she's given away thousands of dollars to help the poor in her neighborhood, and she has consistently shared the gospel. Recently, this lady shared her motive with an interviewer. She said, God did not place me in this world just to take up space. It's not enough just to go along. God wants me to make a difference where I can. And the same is true for us. In fact, here's the million-dollar question this morning. Are you just taking up space? Are you making a difference? In conclusion, let me ask you the question we started with, the question that Steve Jobs used to jar John Scully. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change your world? We change our world one person at a time when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a hot August afternoon. I was mowing the front lawn. My newlywed wife was cleaning up inside. When a moving van rolled up into the duplex right next door to us, some new renters were moving in. And I recognized one of them immediately. In fact, the last time I had seen this guy was the day we'd gotten in a fight in high school. <laughs> last time I saw him. I'd bloodied his nose. He had ripped off my shirt. Of course, a lot had happened since. For starters, I'd given my life to Jesus. Now I was a little ashamed, to be honest with you, of how I'd handled myself that day on the bus when we'd gotten into a fisticuffs. And on top of that, I'd planted a church. I was a pastor now. Well, I started thinking what might happen that day. I figured the newspaper headline, Pastor Gets in Fight with Next Door Neighbor, probably wouldn't be the advertisement we'd want for the new Calvary Chapel that we'd started. When I recognized who it was that was moving in next door, I started, all kinds of thoughts started racing through my mind. Perhaps this fellow still holds a grudge. Maybe he's been looking for me. <laughs> and he's been hoping for an opportunity to settle the score. Maybe he'll want to pick up where we left off. I had no idea. Well, I came inside. I just left the mower right there in the yard. Just came inside dried myself off, told Kath that if I wasn't back in an hour, call the cops. And then I set off next door to greet my new neighbor to the cul-de-sac. When he saw me, he recognized me immediately. But rather than be angry, he was happy to see a familiar face. And I was able to greet him to the neighborhood. After apologizing for my antics several years prior, I told him what had happened in my life since the last time we'd met, that Jesus had turned me around. And we spent the next 45 minutes talking about Jesus and the relationship we can have with him. Who would have thunk it? Of all the people to move in next door to me. It was nothing short of a miraculous thing that God would move my former nemesis into the duplex right next door and give me an opportunity to tell him about the changes that Jesus Christ had made in my life. And yet this is just one of countless, what would you call them? God moments, divine appointments, supernatural encounters, 
holy hookups that God has orchestrated in my life? Here's my challenge to you. Let's be determined that the next time a God moment stares us in the face, the next time God sends us on a divine appointment, whether it's at the soccer game or in the supermarket or in the break room at work, let's not let it pass by. Let's seize the day. Let's open our mouths. People matter to God. And He maneuvers believers to reach lost people. That's why we need to maximize our opportunities. The only question left is, are we willing?